Hi everyone, uh, welcome to this session on reducing lead exposure in low and middle income countries. Uh, my name is James Snowden. Um, I've worked on lead exposure in my roles at GiveWell and Open Philanthropy over the last couple of years. Um, and I'm really excited about this session for a few reasons. I think first, I think this is just a really concrete example of effective altruism actually making tangible progress on an important and neglected problem in a relatively short amount of time. Second, I think it's a really good example of organizations from both within and outside the EA movement working together productively and collaboratively. And third, I think because of its neglectedness, there's just a wide open space to have a lot of impact on this problem. And many of you in the audience will be able to contribute either through funding or by finding ways to apply your skill sets. So we really wanted the three speakers today to focus on the details of their work. So they asked me to give a, a brief overview of the area uh, before we start. So just to kind of outline the absolute basics, so lead is a toxic heavy metal that imposes a significant threat to human health. Uh, the World Health Organization estimates uh, lead exposure kills about a million people each year. Uh, there's also evidence that it causes cognitive harm in children, which can last throughout their lives. And despite this burden, the area remains neglected. Uh, under $10 million goes to address this problem each year from the philanthropic sector. So like many uh, problems that EAs work on, the burden of lead poisoning falls disproportionately on people living in poorer countries. So to put that in perspective, we can compare it to one of the highest profile public health crises in the last decade. In, uh, in 2014, the city of Flint in Michigan switched its water source to the Flint River in an effort to save money. Unfortunately, the river water was highly corrosive, so it kind of resulted in leaching of lead from, from aging pipes into the water supply. Hundreds of thousands of people were exposed to lead in their drinking water. The proportion of children with elevated blood lead approximately doubled from about 2.5% to 5%. President Obama declared a federal emergency, and it wasn't until years later that the situation returned to normal. But if you compare this to our best understanding of the burden in poor countries, data is limited, but the data we do have suggests that around half of children have elevated blood lead. That means by at least one metric, most of the world is experiencing public health crisis about 10 times worse than Flint, Michigan every day. So over the last few years, uh, GiveWell and Open Philanthropy have made approximately $10 million in grants to organizations working to address this problem. And, and I'm delighted to, to have them here today to, to talk about their work. First, we'll hear from Drew McCarter. Uh, Drew is the executive director of Pure Earth, and he's going to talk about the work they're doing to work out what's actually causing lead exposure, as well as the progress they've made in eliminating lead from contaminated spices. Drew is a lawyer and a recognized leader in the environmental health community who's been working on this issue for over 14 years. Then we'll hear from Lucia Coulter. Uh, Lucia is the co-founder and co-executive director of LEAP. She's going to talk about LEAP's work to end the availability of lead paint. LEAP was founded through the Charity Entrepreneurship Incubation Program and is less than, in less than three years has expanded to over 16 countries, or 16 countries. Lucia is also a Schmidt, uh, Schmidt Futures Innovation Fellow and a medical doctor. And finally, we'll hear from Rachel Silverman Bonnefield. Uh, Rachel's a senior fellow at the Center for Global Development, where she's spearheading their work to reduce lead exposure, uh, to, push, to push lead exposure up the global uh, agenda. Uh, Rachel has a lot of experience in policy uh, and covers a lot of different areas, so we're very grateful for her work on, on lead exposure. Great, so um, Drew, why don't, you, why don't you take us away? There you go. Thanks, James, and hi, everyone. Uh, this is actually my first EA event, and I just wanna say thanks for inviting us. It's been absolutely wonderful so far. 
when James says that uh, we represent organizations both inside and outside of the EA movement, I'm representing one of the outside. Um, so we've only been aware of EA for maybe three years now, but the principles are very attractive to us and we've embraced a lot of them and we're now in a steep learning curve um, trying to improve our own kind of impact analysis and embody these principles. So who are we? We're a nonprofit based uh, with headquarters in New York and seven offices around the world. We were founded by my colleague Richard Fuller in 1999 and for the last 24 years we've been working to reduce the health impacts on children in low and middle income countries from toxic chemicals. But about three years ago we kind of evaluated our work and we decided rather than work on a big basket of chemicals, we're just gonna work on lead and mercury. Because we think there's enough evidence to suggest that lead is actually the most damaging chemical in terms of human health by a wide margin. And mercury is probably second. So that's what we're doing these days. Let's see here. We hope that you leave this session with an increased interest in lead and lead exposure and lead poisoning. And because we have so little time to talk about a complex subject, I suggest that if you're interested, you check out a report that we wrote with UNICEF in 2020 called The Toxic Truth. This lays out a lot of the kind of prime information, including health impacts. James alluded to the fact that lead exposure causes permanent brain damage and IQ loss in children. It causes adult onset heart disease. And the report also lays out common sources of exposure and different types of solution. And then perhaps maybe most importantly for this report, the kind of main headline of it was that lead impacts one in three children in the world. And if you just isolate low and middle income countries, you come up with the figure that James said, which is one in two children. So an extraordinary challenge that we face here. So let's have a look at where this is impacting kids. Uh, this is a heat map of estimated mean blood lead level concentrations in children in the world. So the concentration of lead in children's blood. Uh, this is estimates based on not enough data. So a lot of these country estimates are modeled, not based on studies in those countries, but it gives you a good sense of where the impacts are greatest. And indeed, India, one of the darkest red countries here, likely holds about a third of the world's lead poisoned children, or a third of them live in India, rather. Come on. Okay, so what's driving exposures? What are the sources here? First thing to know is that nobody knows. Nobody knows the exact contribution from each source to lead poisoning. And indeed, asking that question at a global scale might not even be that relevant because it actually changes quite a bit from country to country. Mexico has a lot of ceramic pots with lead-based glazes, but we don't think Indonesia has as many. Bangladesh had a lot of contaminated spices, but we don't think that's a problem in whatever other country. So it changes a lot. But there is some consensus around what the main drivers are. Let me get out of your way here. So uh, there's a lot of ceramics made with lead-based glazes. A lot of cheap aluminum cookware, like just aluminum pots that you'd find in a lot of low and middle income countries. And they make it with aluminum and other mixed metals. Spices, people are adding lead-based pigments to spices to make them brighter, which is just putting poison into food, basically. Uh, we'll talk more about spices. Lead-based paint, obviously a lot of you are familiar with Leap's work, and this is another important source of poisoning. The informal and substandard recycling of car batteries is one that creates a lot of localized pollution and really acute exposures. 
And then there's a bunch of other things, cosmetics and toys and medicines that also contribute. Okay, so what are we doing to answer this question, to figure out what the main sources in a specific country are? We have two programs. I'm just gonna try to touch on them very briefly. One we call the Rapid Market Screening Program, and the other is In-Home Source Analysis. This one is fast and cheap, but the data is, is less valuable. This one takes a long time and is expensive, but gives you much more thorough data. So what's a rapid market screening? Well, GiveWell, OpenPhil, EA Fund for Global Health and Development are all contributors to this. We've gone to 25 low and middle income countries and bought thousands and thousands of consumer goods, tested them all for lead to give an indication of what's relevant in those countries. We're not done analyzing it, but to give you a hint of what we're seeing, so far we're seeing about 20% of samples exceeding the relevant public health threshold for that product type. Uh, it changes between products. And we also noticed that Central Asia, which we didn't think would be a hotspot for this, might indeed be. But we're gonna put out a report with all of our findings in Q3 of this year. So that's where most of, most of the interesting stuff will come from. So what's an in-home source analysis? Well, in seven countries, we are testing children's blood to find the concentration of lead in it. And we always couple that by going into the homes of a subset of lead poison kids and non-lead poison kids and testing all of the goods and environmental media in their home to try to establish correlations between the presence of certain products and lead poison kids. Um, and this is important to do in each country because as I said, the sources change from country to country. What's remarkable is actually how little blood testing is done in low and middle income countries. We're doing seven right now. That probably brings the total of big studies in low and middle income countries up to maybe a dozen or so in, in human history. So a remarkable lack of data. Okay. So what kind of interventions do we run? Um, just very briefly, surveillance means testing kids' blood. Incredibly important to understand the prevalence and severity of lead poisoning in that place. Lots of research opportunities here, and I won't even try to lay them out. There's just more unknowns than knowns, really. Um, policy and regulation, we find that's really important for products containing lead. And then advocacy, healthcare capacity building, and direct exposure reduction by, for example, working with potters to do lead-free pottery, cleaning up contaminated sites, working with industries to improve practices, etc. Okay, come on. Okay, two quick case studies. Spices. Um, about three, four years ago, Stanford, a Bangladeshi health institute called ICDDRB and the government of Bangladesh collaborated to test women, pregnant women's blood, figure out what was poisoning them. Turned out it was turmeric in Bangladesh. They, did, they compared the isotopes of lead in the body to the isotopes of lead in different sources. It was turmeric. They organized a big program to do supply chain tracking, work with producers, tell them the damage they were causing. The government did regulatory enforcement. And before the project started, 20% of the turmeric samples they tested exceeded the relevant threshold for lead concentrations. After the project, it was 0.5%. And now critically, they measured the blood lead levels of those women before the project and after and based on preliminary unpublished data, please don't cite this, 
it looks like the median decrease in the women's blood lead level was 37%, and among the women in the 90th percentile, the decrease was 66%, but this will be published by Stanford, and that's the final result that we should all look at. We loved this program at Pure Earth, and we just copied it, and we did it in Georgia that also had a spice problem. Same basic intervention methodology. Before we started, the mean lead level in spices in the most affected region was about 360 parts per million. Today, it looks like it's about four parts per million. One challenge in this project is that we've run out of money to do the follow-up blood lead testing, so if any of you are funders, hint. <laughs> So anyway, the point is that spice interventions appear to be very high-impact interventions. The World Bank is interested in the cost-effectiveness of different types of lead interventions, and we've been giving them data to try to come up with the ROI. So these are just different types of interventions. Contaminated sites, which we used to do a lot of, appear to have a positive ROI, but the lowest. And then for pottery and paint and spices, I wouldn't take these, I would take these all with a grain of salt. I think the conclusion is that for each of these interventions, it appears that there are really attractive ROIs, basically. Because these are products that lend themselves to regulatory interventions that impact huge amounts of people. And I'll stop there. Hi. <clears throat> My name is Lucia Coulter, and I'm co-executive director of LEAP. Um, I've been involved in effective altruism since I was an undergraduate, and after studying medicine and then working as a doctor, I was on the lookout for an opportunity to work on a large-scale, neglected, and tractable problem. So I joined the Charity Entrepreneurship Incubation Program, and that's where I appreciated for the first time the global lead poisoning. One in three kids poisoned permanent brain damage, cardiovascular disease, $1 trillion in lost earnings annually, and 1% of the global burden of disease. It's not easy. <laughs> um, and it seemed like an important opportunity. So I paired up with my co-founder, Jack, and with the support of the Charity Entrepreneurship Incubation Program, we started LEAP. We decided to focus on lead paint as an extremely widespread and unusually tractable source of exposure. High-income countries like the UK banned lead paint over half a century ago, but in most low- and middle-income countries, it's still being sold for home use. Lead paint is being used all over the world in homes and schools where it will remain a source of exposure for decades to come. It forms dust and flakes which are accidentally ingested, particularly by young children, affecting their health, well-being, and future potential. So LEAP's aim is to prevent lead paint from entering the market in the first place and prevent this source of exposure. So, to see if this was possible, we started in Malawi, where it's estimated that 3.4 million children have lead poisoning. We partnered with the University of Malawi, conducted a market analysis, and sampled every brand of home-use solvent-based paint available. We found that 50% of the paints we sampled had extremely high levels of lead. So we brought the data to the regulatory authority, and we found that although they had regulation on lead in paint, it wasn't being monitored or enforced. So in response to this data, they immediately committed to doing so. We've since been working with them to improve their testing capacity and monitoring. We've also been working with the manufacturers. And now the largest paint manufacturer in Malawi has said that they've now switched to lead-free. 
So after exciting progress in our first few focus countries, we've uh, expanded to 16 countries and grown to a team of nine. In six countries now, we have government commitments to either introduce regulation or improve enforcement of regulation. And in three countries, we already have reports of manufacturers switching to lead-free. And one of these is Pakistan. And just over the last couple of days, we've had reports from five of the big manufacturers there that they're now making the switch to lead-free paint. So that's really exciting news. And all of our paint programs more or less follow the same five-step approach. So step one is first we identify and engage with the relevant government authority. We offer our support and we usually sign an agreement uh, laying out how we'll work together. This is some, some pictures from our partners in Ghana, Pakistan, Sierra Leone, and, and Rwanda. And then step two is we conduct a study to identify if and to what extent lead paints are available on the market. Usually this is the first thing our government partner requests and we carry out in collaboration. Or sometimes if we're struggling to engage government, we'll partner with the university to collect this data first. We typically find around 50% of the solvent-based paints we sample are lead paints, as you can see in this graph of around 200 samples across five countries. Um, and we find this country-specific evidence is really important um, to help inform and motivate action, and it's also a useful baseline for the regulatory authority as it can help them plan enforcement. And then step three is we support the government with the introduction of regulation. Um, or improved enforcement of regulation. And this can look different in different countries, but it might involve providing examples from other countries. It might involve providing funding for meetings and workshops, um, or helping with testing capacity um, for monitoring and enforcement. And then step four is engaging industry. So we provide free support, like one-on-one -on -one consultations with our expert paint technologist, who's really cool. He's been working in the paint industry in 52 countries over the last 40 years. So he's the perfect guy for the job. Um, we also run technical workshops for the manufacturers and um, we help them identify suppliers of non-lead ingredients to make the switch easier. And then step five is our follow-up studies. So these will allow us to prioritize further support for monitoring and compliance. And they also measure a key outcome in our theory of change, which is shown here. So the results from our follow-up studies will feed into our cost-effectiveness analysis and allow us to refine our estimate for the percentage of homes that will not have lead paint as a result of our intervention. And then from here, we can estimate the number of kids that will consequently not be exposed. And from there, we can estimate the health and economic benefits over time. So those are our paint programs. Uh, preliminary estimates for impact and cost effectiveness are looking very promising. Founders Pledge estimates that we can avert a child's lead exposure for $1 per child in expectation. And our preliminary estimates are suggesting around $20 per DALI equivalent averted um, with around 80% of that benefit coming from increased earnings. And one of the reasons this is looking so cost-effective is because working at the policy level is just such a highly leveraged way to impact almost the entire population. And now that we have these programs running in 16 countries, um, we expect them to impact millions of children, but there are many, many more countries to go. This map doesn't even show the whole world. Um, and we estimate around 50 countries with high lead paint use that are large enough and tractable enough to run our intervention cost effectively. So there's a lot of room for scale and a lot of impact to be had. Our goal is to get lead paint off the market in all of these countries over the next few years. Um, but a major bottleneck is funding and lead remains just an extraordinarily neglected space. 
Um, and we think there could be other similar opportunities in the lead area, particularly interventions like our paint programs that uh, improve enforcement or regulation, as this seems to be a really powerful way to reduce exposure at scale. We're exploring some of these interventions and uh, have started our first studies into lead and spices and inspired by Stanford and, and PureS work in this area. Um, and on this slide, all right, some more areas I think are worth exploring in, in the lead space. So prioritization research, I think there will be some real value in, in synthesizing the data we already have about different sources, different interventions, different policies, and trying to figure out based on what we already know, what should be done next. Um, Drew mentioned the lack of blood lead data and the lack of source data. Most countries have actually just like no blood lead data and no data on which sources are locally important. Um, and it seems like this will be really important for motivating and informing action on a country level. Um, testing capacity is a big problem. So a lot of the governments we work with don't have any means to test for lead in sources or in blood. Um, and this will be uh, another, another area that seems kind of key to solving this problem. Um, there are lots more ideas on, on this slide and lots more I could say, but I think the key takeaways here are, firstly, that there's already evidence for effective interventions to reduce global lead poisoning, but funding is needed. And secondly, that beyond this, there's more to explore. The scale of the problem is enormous, and there's so little being done at present. So there's, there's a lot of opportunity for impact here. So thank you. to experiment with the button. <laughs> it really is. Yeah. Okay. Get the lead out. Okay. Mobilizing policy support for scaled impact. So um, I'm Rachel Silverman Bonifield, and I'm with the Center for Global Development. So I think uh, we talked about an EA-aligned organization, maybe an organization coming from uh, the outside in, and I think we are a little bit in the middle. <laughs> um, we are not an EA organization, but in some ways I think we've grown up alongside the EA movement and have maybe contributed in various ways. So we call ourselves a think and do tank for global development, and we cover a large range of issue areas. I primarily work, work in global health policy, but we have done quite a lot of work on migration, debt relief, development finance, uh, how the multilateral development banks work and how they can be more effective, aid effectiveness in general. So we cover a lot of different areas. And we, I would say we have quite high evidentiary and cost effectiveness standards. And this is why I say we have sort of grown up alongside the effective altruism movement because a lot of what we have done and sort of where we have I think had impact in directing the conversation is around getting some of these conversations about cost effectiveness, about value for money, about uh, rigorous impact evaluation and being very serious about measuring what works and not overstating impact and understanding the opportunity cost of money. So these are just a couple of examples over the years, but there are many, many more um, where this is the case. And I will draw your attention to, <laughs> this really messes up your flow. Come on. Um, this is actually a 2012 report, uh, and this is, our chapter three was written by Toby Ord. So over a decade ago, I think during the very early days of effective altruism, we were talking about cost effectiveness and the moral perspective in the context of prioritizing in health. And this was a time when this really was not accepted in the mainstream. Um, so again, I would not say we're an EA org, but there's definitely some overlap. So with all that said, how did we come to lead poisoning? <laughs> um, 
like I said, we are a global development organization. We care about issues that affect global development writ large. And in conversations with uh, some colleagues and building off the terrific toxic truth report that uh, Drew was talking about earlier, we saw just some of these statistics um, about how widespread a problem this was, about how this was impacting education outcomes, which is one of the programs, about how this was a health challenge, which is what I personally have worked on for most of my career, and also just an overall growth and uh, poverty challenge. And we really came to the conclusion that assuming the evidence we were seeing was even kind of within an order of magnitude correct, um, this really was a major core development challenge and deserved to be elevated on the agenda in such a way so that it wasn't just groups like Pure Earth and LEAP doing terrific individual work at the ground level and at the policy level in countries, but that it was something we could pull the big institutional funders and the big institutional organizations into and scale the funding and scale the impact. So that was sort of our goal of getting this to be a kind of more mainstream development issue. And I'd say there's, broadly speaking, kind of two theories of policy change you can have here. One is the targeted change. And I would say this would be, say, the lead paint enforcement, right? There's a very specific regulation and enforcement challenge. And you can go in and you can identify the specific government agency that has uh, responsibility for that. And either they will or will not change and enforce the policy. You can kind of measure that after the fact and say exactly what you did and measure what happened. And then there's the theory of policy change that I would call the, come on, I really want this. Uh, the, either the throwing spaghetti at the wall or snowball effect, which is you're kind of trying a lot of things and seeing what sticks and where you can get momentum and opportunities. Because as both uh, the previous speakers have said, there's a lot to do here. There is a lot of sort of untapped opportunity. So it's not just one thing, right? I mean, you can pick any number of things and have a great impact. But you can also just see where you get traction and follow those uh, threads. And that's a little bit what we've been doing. Um, so we have a model called a working group. And this is something we've done for many different issue areas. And the idea is you convene a group um, for a limited period of time around a specific challenge or, or problem statement. So we've done working groups on priority setting and value for money and health and making markets for vaccines and all sorts of different issues over the, uh, over the years. And we decided that lead poisoning would be quite a good uh, issue area for this. And part of the theory of change is that you're bringing together kind of experts from different perspectives, from economics, from medicine, from public health, um, and you're bringing them together with people who actually know nothing about lead poisoning, but are in interesting positions, right? They're the chief economist of the Asian Development Bank. They are the head of education at USAID. And by virtue of bringing them together, we're expanding the audience of people who are part of this community, who care about it, and then they can maybe go off and evangelize and make impact in their own organizations. So to give a kind of an example of how this works, so two of the organizations that are in some capacity represented on our working group are USAID and the United States Environmental Protection Agency. Um, USAID was not really doing any work on this previously. The EPA was doing some. And through this, we have already kind of engaged the G7 process, um, the CDC. We've heard Samantha Power, who's the head of uh, USAID, is like keen on the issue now, and part of that's kind of via our working group. Um, to some extent, we've had a, the ability to get to the White House. I'm not claiming that all of these people are like totally sold and totally all in, 
But the, the point is that you start with your working group members and you build outwards, right? And you get a bigger and bigger audience and group of people who care about this issue and are engaged. And on the other side, I said we had the chief economist of the Asian Development Bank. We had UNICEF represented on the working group. And we had something called the Pali India Foundation. And through them, we decided, you know what? We should start engaging the government of India more. And we have enough inroads in India to do this quite effectively. And so just last month, we held a workshop in India where we had the Secretary of Health, who we reached by virtue of our contacts uh, at the Pali India Foundation, saying, OK, tell us what to do. We want to do something at scale. What do we do? And now it's up to us to think, OK, how do we snowball this even further? How do we get this on the G20 agenda of India? How do we get this to Modi's office so this becomes national policy? How do we then get it out to every Indian state such that everybody is, is adding uh, to the mix? And uh, I think this, is, this was covered really well by Lucia, but just I want to end with kind of a reflection on scale. So this is the Secretary of Health in India. And this is his opening remarks where he's imploring us to give him actionable recommendations. And he's saying, in India, until and unless you talk about speed and scale, nothing will ever make any sense. Because you may do a very good pilot, but pilots at the end of the day are totally irrelevant. If you have to address a public health problem, it has to be at scale. And policy interventions these are such highly leveraged opportunities to get these results at scale. It is a different order of magnitude than what any individual organization can do as a direct service provider. This is the way you get to 1.4 billion people. Um, and just bringing it all together, so um, this is uh, our, that's myself at the end, that's the secretary, that's our colleague at Pali India Foundation, and that's the chief economist of the World Bank. And this is our workshop in India where we've kind of all moved together um, with all these other partners who have been part of our working group process to make this happen in India. And that's just one of several open threads. So just a few lessons uh, for effective altruists from someone who is, I'd say, BA adjacent. Um, true scale comes via policy most of the time. And there is absolutely a place for direct action, but there's a way to combine direct action with high-level policy and advocacy mobilization to maximize impact. And I think that's really the path towards impact at scale. And these pathways of impact, they're not always linear. They're not always perfectly predictable. You can't always totally outline your theory of change uh, in advance. But you have to be opportunistic and adaptable and see the opportunities where they arise and know and be willing to kind of uh, pounce on them. You absolutely need to demand rigorous evidence, but try to avoid evidence paralysis. At some point, you have to decide you have enough to go on. Um, and where that point should be, I think we can have like a discussion about. And, but you want to avoid just getting in a death trap of not doing anything because you don't ever have enough evidence. And this final point I do really want to emphasize. For these policy problems, institution and brand names matter, even when they're slow and frustrating. And I, I count myself among that. No one cares what Rachel Silverman Bonifield has to say. They do have to care what the Center for Global Development has to say. And that gives you a lot of leverage to go forward. So I think people often think, you know, these are not the best ways towards impact to work with these big organizations. Thanks so much, everyone. 
Um, I'd encourage anyone who hasn't already to get out your, your phone and, and go to swap card, um, and then you can add questions uh, in the kind of chat uh, for this event. Um, and they're coming here, and, and I'll vote questions as well. Um, the first question we have um, is, this is probably a good one for you, Drew. Um, uh, it's from Tyler. Why do you think lead wasn't a focus area for philanthropists sooner, uh, and what can we learn more generally from, from that? Yeah, it's a good question. One of the challenges we face is that a lead-poisoned child doesn't present as lead-poisoned even to a reasonably well-trained doctor. It can be tough to diagnose. It's not something that lends itself to taking pictures and showing the impact via photography or video. It's hard for a clinician to even detect without a blood draw. So without a lot of data and without a compelling imagery, it's just tough to know that it's happening out there. And that's one of the challenges. Um, and then the other is, of course, we've all touched on the lack of data. There's more low and middle income countries where no blood tests have been conducted than there are where one has been conducted. So that's my concise answer. Yeah. Do you have anything to add to that, Sia, Rachel? I think that's right. I think the fact that you can't clinically see it, it can be invisible. And I think one thing that's just become obvious to me, and this is just building off what Drew said, no one knows. Truly no one knows. You talk to people about lead poisoning and they're like, oh yeah, Flint, Michigan. That's an America problem. That's an America inner city problem. Oh yeah, yeah, lead poisoning. We banned leaded petrol. That's okay. We already did that. Nobody knows. If you're not measuring, if you're not paying attention, and you're, you know, this is a subclinical illness for the most part, you don't see it. And it's, it's easier to ignore it than to start standing up the systems to address it. And I'd add kind of from my perspective as a, as a funder, um, it, it's such a kind of, it's such a kind of silly reason, but, but I think the way we kind of carve up the world and, and look at the world kind of determines how, how we prioritize. And, and generally, the, the global burden of disease, which is this kind of big study of, of different, uh, the burden of, of different diseases, tends to focus on causes of death. So it kind of cuts the world up in like malaria and HIV. And, and so those are the kind of areas that we think about when we're, we're thinking about what to invest in. And it's only kind of recently, I think, maybe in the last five years or so, that they started thinking about lead as a kind of cause area. And so that just kind of popped out as something that we could then compare to other, other areas. Um, we've got a question for Lucia from Tom. Um, Lucia, you seem to have uh, had a lot of success with convincing manufacturers to change to lead-free paint. Uh, other harmful product industries seem far harder to make change or regulate away from population harm, so like the tobacco industry, for example. What lessons have you learned on engaging manufacturers, or have you been lucky that it's an easy switch to lead-free paint? Yeah, so I think there are a few things that make it quite tractable. Um, getting manufacturers to switch. Um, so the first thing to say is that it seems like regulation or at least incoming regulation that they actually believe will be enforced is necessary in most cases before um, they'll make the switch. Um, but not always sufficient. So um, there are many countries where there is regulation in place, um, but it's maybe not being enforced well enough. And so they're they're still putting, putting lead in the paint. Um, when we approach manufacturers, usually they are, um, they kind of, they talk about some of the costs of it, but the costs are not huge. It's not a necessary ingredient. Um, it's, it's been phased out in other parts of the world. 
um, and the barriers are kind of not, yeah, they're just not that great. So we can, we can say sometimes, you know, the government's about to enforce this regulation, we can provide the support and they'll be like, okay, we'll, we'll work with you and take your support and then, and then switch to lead free and order our new ingredients. It's not like a, a huge um, economic disincentive. Um, and also, it can be reputationally quite damaging. Um, so if they are a brand with like a reputation for high quality, um, then it could be a priority for that reason. Yeah. yeah. Thanks, Lucy. Um, I guess a question for, for all of you. Um, what, what do you see as the kind of up, upcoming challenges in, in the lead exposure space, or relatedly, kind of what are the bottlenecks to, to making more progress? We don't have enough bodies to throw at it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's one of these kind of good problems to have, but it's still a problem, which is that there's so many opportunities. And I think the three of us are just running around like chickens with our heads cut off, like trying to like to find them and and uh, or to, to, you know, take advantage of them. There's not enough people, there's not enough funding, and there are just endless opportunities. And again, one of these like good problems to have is that you start telling anybody about the problem people are really keen to do something. I mean, I've worked on a lot of issue areas over the years, and this is the most, you know, where you just talk to people a couple of times and then they are out hustling on their own, but then they come back to you and they're like, that's great, I have an opportunity over here. And you're like, okay, but I'm just one person. <laughs> we need more people, we need more funding. Yeah. Um, yeah. So can I add something? <laughs> there are other organizations that work on this, but you're looking at a non-trivial percentage of all of the organizations <laughs> doing international work on lead. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I think, yeah, one of the bottlenecks is is getting the kind of resources and attention to be proportionate to the, the scale of the problem. Um, from the kind of LMIC government perspective, because um, I think probably most of the solution will be low middle income country governments being able to regulate their sources of exposure. And I think from that perspective, the bottlenecks are awareness as well. There's like very low baseline awareness. Um, country-specific data can be important. So in, in the case of lead paint, there are very few countries that have or will um, implement regulation without having some data that there's actually lead in paint in the country. Um, testing capacity is a barrier as well for um, low-income country governments. It's very hard to introduce or, or um, implement a regulation if they have no means to enforce it. Um, and funding for their kind of processes to to kind of have the meetings they need to get people on board to do it, to raise the awareness within their own governments, um, and to also bring industry along. Um, often, low-income country governments, we find, are reluctant to introduce a regulation if industry aren't being brought along, um, and that, that takes some resources as well. Yep. Can I add one more thought there? There's also this kind of circular logic that happens. We've experienced that, so low- and middle-income country governments, like all governments, will act most profoundly when they're acting on their own data. So that means testing their own kids. But to convince them to test their own kids, you need to present them with data, but they're skeptical of outside data. So you're just stuck in this logic circle of how do you get them to want to test their own kids? Yeah, interesting. Pointed question from Fiona for me. Um, what can open philanthropy do to help relieve the funding bottlenecks described by PRF and <laughs> Seems like there's a lot of low-hanging fruit that could be accessed with the next, say, $10 million. Um, it's a good question. <laughs> uh, so we are, we, we hope to be launching a program um, to add more funding to the space, um, and we'll have a better read on that, I think, in the next few months. Um, I would say, I think it's important to, to know that um, 
you know, we are not in the funding situation that we were in a year ago as a community, um, and their open philanthropy does not have this covered. Like, even if we do launch a program, there is no way we will be able to cover the need, and we think there are really promising funding opportunities that we won't be able to fund. So I do think this is an area where individual philanthropists and other major donors could really make a difference. Um, and if you know any, I would be happy to chat with them, as would uh, anyone on this panel. Um, a question from Max. Um, are there high-income country development agencies that are working on lead poisoning, and if so, what approaches are they taking? Uh, maybe Rachel? Yeah, I can take this one. So we, di we did, for the G7, we did kind of a scoping report where we basically looked at what the G7 countries, and if you don't know, that's um, the US, Canada, UK, Germany, Italy, France, and Japan. Um, and you know, collectively, uh, and then kind of the European Commission gets sort of lumped in there as well. Um, collectively, this is quite a big portion of the overall kind of overseas development assistance that is out there. And we basically did this scoping exercise to just say, okay, what is everything these countries are doing on lead poisoning? And the answer is very, very little. Um, there are some one-off initiatives here and there, tends to fall into kind of like chemicals management work. It tends not to be very core to uh, kind of the global health and development sectors. It's, it's more in this like technical cooperation. There has been like an alliance to eliminate lead paint. That's, that's been somewhat interesting, um, but I think, you know, not necessarily at the scale you would want to see. Um, we are trying to get some more traction in the aid agencies, and we've been working with USAID a bit. Um, they have a bit of funding to do lead poisoning uh, now um, from like a line item. And we've also been engaging kind of with their education program and some of these questions about like school feeding, like are there safe pots being used in school feeding, or is that actually potentially like a, a path of lead exposure? Um, but it's still, I think, early days in trying to get traction and kind of meaningful action from high-income aid agencies on this. One anecdote from 24 years of chasing bilateral development funding, we have always had to try to squeeze in to some other pillar of funding, like urban yeah. sustainability or child and maternal health or education, and just try to convince them that, oh yeah, lead fits in here, it's gonna be fine. Yeah, and just on, on that note, I mean, one of the weird challenges about this is it is a multi-sectoral or cross-sectoral issue. So it's kind of everyone's business and no one's business. Very easy for it just to fall through the cracks and say, yeah, that's interesting, but it's not what we do. Yeah. Uh, question for everyone. Um, from Morgan, uh, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on how to evaluate activities such as the working group model and policy action. How do we know it's working? How do we reliably know what the additional contribution of an activity was to the outcome? I guess that's a me question. Um, yeah, it's a good question, and I'm not sure there's like a perfect answer to it. So actually, OpenPhil has partnered with my organization to look, and this is public online, there are five case studies um, that sort of, I guess, consultants hired by Open Philanthropy uh, did kind of looking and tracing, trying to trace through our impact on various kind of outcomes. But it's, it's a little bit hard to say, and it's um, often the, the pathways to impact, they're non-linear. Uh, they are over pretty long time horizons, and the mechanisms are pretty, they're subtle or at least arguable, right? It's like changing the conversation. You know, we started introducing these ideas of cost effectiveness. Can you, you know, chart a literal linear path from that to, you know, the health technology agencies that certain countries have established, sort of. Can you say with any reliability what your contribution to that is? 
eh. like it's it's tough, right? I mean, and I think we are people who demand rigorous evidence, and yet this is a challenge of working in the policy space. That it's really, really tough to back out. And I think the best you can do is make some, you know, defensible guesstimates and be transparent about the assumptions you're making. Yeah, and I would just kind of reinforce that from the funding side. I think. You know, I was at GiveWell for about five years, and, and most of the work I did was on very direct interventions like bed net distribution or, or deworming tablets. And you kind of have this linear theory of change. You can, you can build a model. There's, there's uncertainty, but at least you kind of, you, you kind of know what you're trying to model almost. Um, and in areas like this, it's just much more complex, right? There are like causal arrows going in different directions. It's it's really hard, and and you kind of, um, I think it, it does require a different like attitude. Uh, you're, you're not trying to like build the single model of truth. You're not trying to treat a spreadsheet like an oracle. You're kind of using the spreadsheet to kind of play with your own intuitions and, and the moving things up and down. I mean, okay, what if it was that? What if it was that? It's just a kind of much messier kind of thought process than, than you would see in, in kind of typical giveaway work, for example. A question from uh, David. Um, have you done much on engaging academics to help with research? Uh, have there been any difficulties with this? Um, we we engage academics sometimes in our in our focus countries to help with the the um, paint research that we do. It's been really productive and, and fruitful. Like often um, having local academia involved and um, academic publications instead of just kind of policy reports can be quite um, compelling for the governments we're advocating to. Um, we've also been doing some with our friend Jenna at Stanford. It's been great. Um, looking into if there are kind of cheaper and more robust and um, accessible methods to test for lead in paint. And yeah. Our work always includes a local partner wherever we're working and very often that's a university who we are trying to essentially provide technical assistance and funding to so we can pass off the work to them. We work quite a lot with academics. I mean, our own organization is kind of quasi-academic institution, and we do a lot of research output, mostly of sort of like economics uh, research. Uh, our working group has several academics coming from public health, medical backgrounds, economics backgrounds. Um, and yeah, I, I'd say working with academics is a pretty core part of our model. And you need them in this field a lot because there's just a lot of scientific questions. It really touches a lot of different areas of academia. Thank you. Um, kind of general question for, for whoever, I'm not sure who would be best placed to answer it, but it seems like there might be a, a lot of uncertainty in, in at least the size of the harm that like lead, lead causes in terms of mortality. Can, can you kind of characterize that uncertainty? How, how large is it and, and what could it depend on? We're about to see that play out rather dramatically this year. Most of the statistics that we've all cited come from the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluations Global Burden of Disease Study that they do with the World Health Organization. They presently estimate that about a million people die mostly from heart disease related to lead exposure. They're about to redo that analysis and have indicated that their estimate will go up, maybe by a factor of two. The World Bank is also, we hear, and they've made a public statement about this, gonna release their own estimate which will raise it by a factor of maybe five or so. So we're about to enter a world in which there are two competing estimates that are rather different from each other. Um, and so that's going to present the uncertainty rather starkly. <laughs> Great, uh, question from Joan. Um, 
Yeah, how hard and expensive is it to get data in one country? So say, you know, do you have a rough estimate for how much does it cost to measure blood lead levels across an entire country? How much would it cost to, to try and work out what, what the sources of, of exposure are? So to do a nationally representative survey is, um, of course, depends on the size of the country. Um, UNICEF told us how much they spent to do a nationally representative survey in Georgia, and unfortunately I don't have that at the tip of my tongue, but I'm going to say it was likely between half a million and a million dollars. Um, but if you tried to do it in India, for example, you'd be looking at a totally different figure. We often do blood lead level studies that are not nationally representative but are large, um, and those we run for about 250,000 maybe. Um, that could adequately characterize the burden in, say, an Indian state. And Lucia, what about your work? How, how much would that cost? To yes, so to find out uh, whether and to what extent lead paint is available on the market, a study will typically cost um, no more than around $4,000. So it's quite low cost. Yeah. Oh. Um, I have a question uh, from Diamud. Um, apologies if I've pronounced that wrong. Uh, what are the pros and cons of consolidating your organizations versus keeping them separate and tackling the lead poisoning um, problem? Or kind of more broadly, I, I'm curious, how, how do you guys collaborate and um, what, what does that look like? How often are you meeting? How, how often are you exchanging notes? Well, CGG does many other things besides lead poisoning, so I think we're maybe in our own bucket a little bit. I mean, I think we have set up this working group, which is kind of a collaborative mechanism, but I don't think it would make sense for CGD to consolidate. We just sort of have our own model and do our own thing, but maybe you can talk. We haven't discussed becoming one organization between us, but we have a standing monthly call where, for example, I would ask Lucia, we're doing this rapid market survey screening. It includes testing paint. You have more experience on that than we do. Are we doing it right? Lucia is building an organization that is two or three years old and commonly asks us, administratively, how have you handled this complicated NGO formation question? Yeah. So we talk very frequently. And I also talk to them constantly. Sometimes let me talk to them as well. <laughs> um, there's a kind of question here about, um, which I missed first time, apologies. Uh, what, what have been the kind of main challenges, um, Rachel, with engaging policymakers to, to take action? Um, so what, what's really been effective at addressing those challenges and, and what, what, what challenges remain unresolved? So, I mean, I think the challenge, the biggest challenge is just follow through. You know, you get a lot of people who are excited in the moment and want to do something, but one person being excited about something is not enough to make something happen, right? You need to sort of push it through and push on a lot of different sides. So I think just kind of being able to chase and track down and support all the opportunities uh, is in this case the biggest challenge. Um, I, I would actually differentiate this from most other issues I've worked on where actually just kind of convincing people or kind of their skepticism or inertia or ways of working are more the issue. And here, it, that's not, because it's so new and everyone's learning about it for the first time, it's not, you don't really encounter that. I think the biggest thing you encounter is just a lot of enthusiasm and no support structure to actually make anything happen. So it's a lot of like personally chasing people down, reminding them, asking them again, and, and that sort of uh, process. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. 
Yeah, so I'm curious, um, question for all of you, like, do you have any advice for the people in this room who might want to contribute to this problem? Um, what should they do? Georgia blood lead study. <laughs> how, no. how much would it cost? 170. Right. Um, no, there's so many different ways to engage. Uh, I had a slide on different kind of intervention, and one of them just said research. And there's a whole world inside just that one bullet that's possible for a research-oriented organization. There's equally as many policy, different types of activities. Um, you know, in-country studying of blood lead levels and sources is super valuable, and we haven't done enough of it. Oh, mm. Every conceivable way to engage in this would be valuable. Yeah, like starting with just like talking, tweeting about it, tell your friends, like people are really interested when you start talking about it. Like I, I, even that just basic thing, like read the toxic truth report and then talk about it at a cocktail party. Like I'm a lot of fun at cocktail parties, you can imagine, but <laughs> you'd be surprised like how good like a party topic this is, like how interested just normal people are who don't necessarily, there's just, there's so much that you can do in small and big ways. There's just truly like endless opportunities here. Yeah, I think um, one of the kind of like uh, top priorities on, on our mind at the moment, something we, we really want someone to do is this kind of prioritization research of like synthesizing what's known already and figuring out kind of um, what should be done next in terms of interventions and policies. Um, but beyond that and beyond kind of what others have mentioned as well, there's also a, like a technology innovation um, gap here. There's a real need for um, kind of uh, cheap and robust like point of care blood lead testing technologies um, and same for source testing. And I think it shouldn't be that technologically complex. It should be very doable. I think there's just a real lack of innovation. Um, and probably some of these other problems can be can be solved with, um, with innovation and technology as well. Um, yeah. Maybe the subject of a challenge grant or something like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, or advanced market commitment. I mean, part of the problem is there's no market for it, right? So nobody, it's kind of the same death spiral Drew uh, <laughs> described yeah. earlier. Like, it's too expensive for it to be integrated into regular care. And because no one's buying it, people think there's no market for it, right? So you kind of need to create the market and start a more virtuous cycle going. Final question. Um, are any of your organizations hiring at the moment, or is the main bottleneck funding? We to work on lead exposure specifically. Um, we will likely soon be hiring for a researcher role. Um, and that role would involve kind of being our, our technical expert on lead exposure research, being responsible for cost effectiveness analysis and monitoring and evaluation, and also hopefully doing some of this prioritization work that we've just been talking about. I believe we're hiring for two roles, but my colleagues are gonna kill me for forgetting exactly what they are. Uh, PureEarth.org, you can find where, what we're hiring for. Uh, we are not currently hiring. If you know we get more funding, I would love to hire kind of like a full-time program coordinator type person on this to help chase down some of these opportunities because I really can't do it on my own. <laughs> but uh, currently we are not doing that. But hopefully at some point in the future we will. Wonderful. Uh, Drew, Lucia, uh, Rachel, thanks so much. Um, really appreciate you taking the time to, to share your knowledge with us. Um, all of us will be staying around about this area for, for office hours now, so if you have any other questions, please just stick around and, and we'll be happy to chat. Thank you so much. Thank you.